Welcome, everybody, to Bitcoin Optech newsletter number 288, recap on Twitter Spaces. We have two special guests today, T-Bast and Eugene, with Dave as our co-host today. And we're going to be talking about a block stalling bug in Bitcoin Core. We're going to talk about zero-conf channels with V3 transactions, verifying inputs that use SegWit and protocols that could be vulnerable to TXID malleability, an idea for replaced by fee rate in order to escape pinning attacks, and an update on the Bitcoin dev mailing list, in addition to our weekly release and notable code updates. I'm Mike Schmidt. I'm a contributor at Optech and executive director at Brink, where we fund Bitcoin open source developers. Dave, thanks for joining us today. You want to say hi to everybody? Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Dave. I'm co-author of the uh, Optech newsletter and co-author of Mastering Bitcoin Third Edition. Bastian? Hey, I'm Bastian. I'm working on the Lightning Network and uh, one of its implementation, Eclair, and one popular wallet, Phoenix. Eugene? Uh, hi, I'm Eugene, and I work on LND. Well, thanks, Bastian and Eugene, for joining us. For those following along, this is Newsletter 288, and we're going to go through in order here, starting with the news section. We have a few different news items this week. The first one is titled Public Disclosure of a Block Stalling Bug in Bitcoin Core Affecting Lightning Network. Eugene, this was something that you announced on Delving Bitcoin that you discovered this bug. Why don't you explain the bug and, and maybe also a little bit about how you found it? Uh, yeah, so before version 22 of Bitcoin Core, there were two ways to get notified of a block. Um, compact block relay and headers first relay. And I don't think this has changed since then. But um, those were the two ways to get notified of a block. And Bitcoin Core does implement BIP 152. Um, and you choose three peers for compact block relay. Um, and so it will select a peer for high bandwidth compact block relay. Um, select a peer if it was the first out of all the peers to announce a block. And before version 22, it was possible for an inbound attacker to take up all three of these slots. Um, and Core also had this logic where if you're the first to announce a block by a, a header's first relay, you'll be selected first to serve up the block. And that logic still exists. Um, and you have like a timer of around 10 minutes to serve the block. And if you fail to deliver the block, the next peer in line gets the uh, get data. So um, at the time, Core had this very predictable order of peer processing. And it could be exploited because if I connect very rapidly, 50 times in a row, let's say, um, uh, with no honest connections in between my 50 sequential connections, you could just uh, not serve the block for that amount of time. Um, so that's the stalling part. Um, and it affects LN because you need to be aware of blocks to be able to um, do on-chain settlement. And uh, if there's an HTLC routed across um, the network and you're part of the, that route, um, basically 
you could be prevented from, I guess, settling on chain to HTLC. And so you can lose the value of an HTLC that way. Um, but yeah, I found this, I was just uh, researching, I guess, the Bitcoin Core net processing code. And I just stumbled upon this by chance. Okay, so you, you weren't running any sort of like automated testing or anything like that on the lightning side of things, you were just kind of reviewing the code out of maybe curiosity and you saw that, that maybe this sort of attack was possible and it was. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Okay. So in, in this attack scenario, am I right to understand that the victim would have to be attacked at the peer to peer level as well as also, um, in the lightning, uh, topology, the attacker would also have to have either side of the victim in terms of routing. Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing the attacker has to do is like identify um, the victim's Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin node. And that can be done in a variety of ways. Maybe they have the same addresses or maybe you want to do like transaction source identification if you want to get fancy. Um, but uh, in my example, I had the attacker be on both sides of the victim, but that you don't actually need that. You only need the attacker on one side of the victim. Um, so you only need the attacker to have a channel on the outgoing side. And then the attacker can have um, just a, any old channel, any old path to the victim through a different channel. So it doesn't have to be like sandwiched in between, like in my example. And on the Bitcoin side of things, am I right to understand that this vulnerability was present um, both with, with headers first and, and compact block relay? Because um, you mentioned the compact block relay three slots and then also clogging up the slots on the headers first relay. Um, you gave the example of 50 slots. Um, is that either or both maybe right um so you you need to the attacker has to um control all three compact block connections um because if uh because blocks are um i guess announced unsolicited if if you have high bandwidth peers and if you don't have those three compact block connections controlled then victim gets notified of the block so you have to, you have to uh, um, stack up all of these connections um, uh, to you stack up all of these connections um, and they're like uh, headers first relay those connections but then you also control the three uh, compact block connections and we noted in the newsletter two related changes in Bitcoin core to prevent this sort of stalling the first one was Bitcoin Core 22.114, which, um, as you mentioned, put the attack involved the sequential ordering of peers. And if you are an attacker and you just get in a bunch in a row as a peer, um, that was part of the attack. And so that PR 22.114 randomizes the order that peers would be serviced in when you're handling that sort of thing. So that would make it harder for the attacker unless I guess they controlled most of the slots, then hopefully you at least have one honest peer then that would mitigate this issue. And the second PR, 22147, would keep one at least one outbound high bandwidth compact block filter peer 
And so then the chances of you, I guess, picking the attacker then is drastically reduced versus them flooding your inbound slots. Do I have that right? Yep, exactly. Dave or T-Bast, you may have some more details you want to dive into with Eugene. Uh, well, first of all, thank you, Eugene, for uh, reporting this and, and helping it get fixed. I'm, I think we're all very grateful for that. And thank you also for you know, publicly disclosing it once it had been fixed. Um, I think it's very useful for us all to be able to learn from you know, these past vulnerabilities. Um, one of the questions I had was in your post, you discussed some of the ways that, you know, LND could, uh, you know, kind of work around this problem, uh, you know, make sure things were uh, safe. And I was, you know, actually while you were talking, I looked up an old newsletter of ours where we covered uh, LND 5621, PR 5621, when, um, LND started sending the latest block header as part of its ping messages. Um, and we noted that as a type of protection against eclipse attacks. We have an article on eclipse attacks on our website in the topic section. Um, and I know also, TBAS is here, I know Eclair has a number of sources that it uses to get the latest block headers for, you know, uh, eclipse attack protection, and this is kind of what this block stalling attack is. I didn't think of it that way when I was writing the newsletter, but this is kind of a uh, an eclipse attack, where you, unlike a regular eclipse attack, where you just make sure a node only has its honest peers. In this case, we prevent the node from getting information from its honest peers if it has any. Um, and I was just wondering, you know. Uh, it, was that part of the mitigation on the L&D side, or is that something you just thought was good in general? Um, and I was also wondering if, you know, Vassian um, uh, had any, any comments on Eclipse attack protection, building that straight into LN nodes, you know, having them get the latest block through alternative sources besides their Bitcoin node. Sorry, I'm a little rambling there, but basically, you know, is that a good thing for LN nodes to do? Uh, is to get blocks from their Bitcoin uh, node as well as from other sources like other LN peers? Um, it was not a mitigation that uh, PR five six two one. I think it was just like a nice to have in case we decide to like um, actually act on being behind. Um, we haven't really done anything in LND yet. Um, with that data, but uh, yeah, um, I think it's a good idea to just have it um, because eventually we could have logic where if we detect we're behind, then um, we can, I don't know, do something like fetch block from peer. I think that's the RPC and Bitcoin core. Um, do something like that to get a block if, if we're behind. Too best. Thoughts on the chain too? Yeah, first of all, thanks for working on this, finding this issue, responsibly disclosing it and waiting for it to be fixed and deployed before uh, announcing, announcing it publicly. So I'd like to summarize some best practices around uh, how Lightning nodes use Bitcoin nodes. First of all, well, first of all, you should have reasonable delays in your CLTV expiry deltas so that if you are attacked, the attacker has to be able to sustain the attack for many blocks 
to make it harder for them. So by default, uh, I think all implementations kind of raised their defaults over the past year or two years, but you should check what the default for CLTV expiry delta is for, for your implementation. And maybe you should consider raising it even more if you want to be safe. And then you should really make sure that it is hard to identify the Bitcoin node that is associated to your Lightning node because it is really hard to recover from an Eclipse attack. We have ways to detect it. We can detect that we are not receiving blocks, but actually acting on it automatically is quite hard because you would need, for example, to be able to fall back to a secondary Bitcoin node, which requires more operational and uh, more um, hooks that have mostly not been uh, implemented by anyone right now. So the best defense is to make sure that you cannot be Eclipse attacked because eclipsing someone is quite hard if you are unable to identify the Bitcoin node. So first of all, make sure that your Bitcoin node is not operating under the same IP address as your Lightning node because you are advertising your Lightning node to the world with its IP address. So if there's a Bitcoin node that matches exactly that IP address, then it's really obvious that it is yours. And it may be an issue for people using things like Umbrella or Raspberry Blitz. So you want to make sure that this is properly configured. And uh, yeah, be prepared to have a potential fallback secondary node that you use in case uh, you detect an eclipse attack or suspect that something is going wrong because your node is constantly warning you that it's not receiving blocks as it should. And um, But yeah, we, we have all those warnings in Eclair, but we have no automation for actually switching to a different Bitcoin node because that also creates a lot of potential issues. So the best defense is to make sure that your Bitcoin node is well hidden. Dave, question for you. In the newsletter, we noted the stalling attack which took advantage of older versions of Bitcoin Core being willing to wait up to 10 minutes for a peer to deliver the block um, before requesting from another peer. Has that changed since uh, these older versions? And if so, do you recall how? Um, I don't recall that we're willing to wait. See, the, the thing here is if you have an honest, compact block, high bandwidth peer, and, and by default, Bitcoin Core, I think, currently selects three of those, and maybe the future will add more slots. But if you have an honest, compact block peer as a high bandwidth road, the, the way that works is they send you the block immediately upon them receiving it. They receive it, they do a minimal verification on it, and then they forward it to you. That's why the blocks propagate to the network very fast. And so the first part of Eugene's attack there is making sure you don't have any honest uh, high bandwidth mode compact block peers. Um, so I think the answer to your question is that we, we don't normally wait 10 minutes. Uh, we don't expect to have to wait 10 minutes because we expect one of our compact block peers to send us that block right away. Um, beyond that, if, if you are still able to prevent uh, Bitcoin Core from having um, compact block high bandwidth peers, the next protection is that we now have uh, outbound connections, connections that our node uh, creates to peers that it selects. So they're not selected by an outside party. We select them ourselves. Um, I think we currently have two of them and they're block only connections. Uh, and so those peers, uh, we, we tell them we don't want them to send us all transactions. We just want them to send us the latest blocks. Um, and I don't know if we give them preference, but I think we do give them preference for sending us blocks. Um, 
And then again, we have the mitigations, the two mitigations we discussed in a newsletter that were direct responses to Eugene's report, which is that we randomized the order in which we selected peers. Uh, so like Eugene said, you know, in his attack, you know, you create, say, 50 connections very close in time to each other. And so they're all in a row. And we would just, you know, round bottom, round robin select between those peers. Um, now we'll select a random peer. So you'd have to control every one of the incoming slots and also the outbound slots. Uh, so on a, on a fully connected network node, that's 125 slots uh, that you'd have to control. Plus you'd have to control the block only connections. Um, and then the other one we have is that we choose our outbound peers for high bandwidth compact block relay mode uh, more selectively. We try to keep at least one of the outbound peers, even if it isn't as well performing as some of our inbound peers. Eugene, thanks for joining us. You're welcome to stay on through the rest of the newsletter and, and comment if you'd like. Otherwise, if you have other things to do, you're free to drop. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Cheers. Next item from the newsletter, titled Securely Opening Zero-Conf Channels with V3 Transactions. This discussion was started by Matt Corallo, posting to the Delving Bitcoin Forum, but as Matt couldn't make it with us today, Tvast, perhaps you could help explain the idea here? Yeah, sure. So V3 Transactions are... Um is a new policy change that restricts the that adds a uh, more restriction to the cluster of t transactions you are able to submit to the mempool and the goal of that change is to make sure that we have in the short term good enough mitigations for pinning attacks and it's a it's a, it's a quite effective mitigation for most of the pin, pinning attacks we're aware of but one of the issue is that it limits the those packages of unconfirmed transactions to one parent one child so this is fine in most cases, but there's one use case where that is quite limiting, and this is zero conf with lightning channel, especially when you start using splicing transactions, because when you want to make zero conf splices, your channel history kind of is going to be a chain of spliced transactions spending each other, and if done correctly, you can safely use zero conf for them. But you can safely use zero conf for them if you're sure that you are able to make them confirm at some point in case there is a force close with bending HTLC and you have to claim that before a timeout expires. And the issue is here is we were figuring, we were trying to figure out should we make those splice transactions v3 or not? Would it fix something or would it not fix it? So the issue is that if we make those transactions v3, then that means we cannot create chains of unconfirmed transactions anymore because we would be limited by one unconfirmed parent, one unconfirmed child. So we don't want that because otherwise it's too limiting for mobile wallets. So since we want to keep those chains of unconfirmed transactions and keep using zero conf, we cannot make them v3. So if we cannot make them v3 and still want to make sure that we're able to make them confirm at any point in time, that means each of those transactions need to have some kind of anchor that we can use to CPFP. And for example, if you have a chain of five unconfirmed transactions and then there's a force close with a pending HTLC, you would start at the top with the first one that doesn't have any unconfirmed parent, use CPFP on that one to make sure that it confirms, then do the second one, then the third one, then the fourth one, then eventually your commitment transaction, which is quite annoying because 
it's really inefficient. It means you have to add new outputs to funding transactions, which adds weight, which means you also lock some uh, some funds in change outputs that are unsafe for a while. So this is not great, but ZeroConf is already kind of a trust trade-off. So this is a trade-off that people will have to choose for themselves if they're willing to take that uh, potential security risk or not. And in the long run, cluster mempool is hopefully going to help us have better v3 topologies that would let us use ZeroConf safely with this change of transactions while being safe from pinning. But that is still a long ways off. Was that clear enough? I, one follow-up question for me, maybe it's clearer for others. Um, is it is it specific to um, zero conf and splicing? Uh, like if you're just doing a non a non splicing zero conf uh, channel opening, could you still use V three? I'm trying to figure you, out. If you have I'm... yeah you you would have you would have the same a similar issue, but not exactly the same. If you are opening a new channel, then you would have the funding transaction. The commitment transaction that would be a child of that, and then your anchor transaction that would yet be another child of that. So if you make the funding transaction v3, that means while that while it's unconfirmed, you could only publish the funding transaction and the commit transaction, but you would not be able to publish the anchor that is supposed to do the CPFP because of a restriction to one unconfirmed parent and one child. So you would still have to add a change output or an anchor output to the funding transaction to be able to CPFP it. So you have kind of the same issue with funding transactions. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Thanks for clarifying. Dave, what do you think? Yeah, so I think the you know, the, the thing to think through there is that for the party who is getting to use the channel uh, in a zero comp state, especially if they're a client user um, who isn't receiving funds, is only sending funds, um, which is the only thing that's safe to do in the zero, zero comp state for a new channel, they're pretty much safe here. It's the other user who could have problems. Um, and, and it is kind of an exploitable problem unless you add these extra outputs to the funding transactions or the splicing transactions. And um, yeah, so it's just kind of like it's a waste of chain space. Um, it seemed to me, and I guess this is my question uh, to, back to Bastian, is it seemed to me from the discussion that, you know, lighting developers are like, you know, this is a problem, um, but we're probably just going to have to modify our stuff and hope that V3 gets in and then V3.1 or, or whatever the next thing is uh, gets implemented really fast and you can just drop these connect these these extra outputs. Is, is that basically where you're leading to fast? Like hoping that somebody comes up with a brilliant idea, but expecting that you're just going to have to put a little extra data on Chan on on chain uh, on chain for um, funding transactions and splicing transactions for a year or two. Yeah, that's exactly how we think about it. But on top of that, while the we're also taking a kind of uh, at least for our node, we're also taking a kind of leap of faith where if the mempool is not crazy full, we just do splicing transactions that don't have. We still use a fee rate that is reasonable for the splicing transactions. And we don't put these uh, uh, these anchor outputs, which is somewhat taking a risk. But uh, but yeah, we we are taking that risk for most transactions because otherwise the trade-off is that the issue with splicing is that whenever you make a splice transaction and you have a change output on that, or, or in that case we would only make a 
an anchor output. But uh, if you have a change output in a splice transaction, the issue is that since that splice transaction could be double spent by a commitment transaction, your change output is unsafe, which means that it's some of your money, some of the money that belongs to your Bitcoin wallet that you cannot use until the splice transaction confirms. So we want to make sure that splice transactions confirm quite quickly anyway. So our goal is to target a fee rate. And since when you are making a splice, you are really creating it right now. It's not like commitment transaction that will be published later. You know the current fee rate, so you can still choose a fee rate that makes sense so that you are targeting block inclusion in the next few blocks. You are using ZeroCon to make sure that it can be used right away, but the goal is that it still confirms quite soon so that you don't have this issue at all. So it is still a risk because the fee rate could just keep rising after you publish that transaction and you may not be included in a block at all, but it's a risk we are taking now. Yeah, with all the shenanigans in the mempool, um, yeah, it is it is a bit risky. I saw that there was, I think, one of these BRC20 mints that occurred at a specific block height, and <clears throat> the fee rate on the previous block was something like in the 30 Satoshis per V-byte range, and the very next block was something like 500 plus Satoshi's for for VBite because I think the transaction demand was related to one specific block. So these spikes can happen really quickly now with a lot of what's going on with these other protocols. Yeah, but they would need it would need to spike and keep spiking for in our case at least 144 blocks, which is our CLTV expiry delta, which happens. It's true, it does happen, and uh, but the user would also need to coordinate with that because they would need to prepare the space transaction beforehand, they would be paying us fees in that space transaction. And if the attack fails, they are paying us fees. So it's not ideal. I'd like to have a much better solution than that. But uh, in practice, it's kind of okay. Because we're also limiting, we're also quite limiting the, the amount that can be in flight at the time on channels. Uh, our implementation is the most restrictive in uh, uh, the amount that can be pending in a channel which limits the amount we may lose, but uh, but it, it is still dangerous, I agree. It's funny looking at all the work that's going into something like V3 with just the simple one parent, one child setup. And, and now we're, we're already starting to talk about, well, if we could have a more <laughs> permissive topology, like Dave said, 3.1 three or something like that. Um, well, hopefully we get there. Dave, anything else on this topic before we move along? Well, just if you want to learn about uh, Greg Sanders, as he is here, you always want to know his vision for the future of V3 transactions. You have to wait for next week's newsletter because he has put a post up on Delving Bitcoin. I haven't read it yet, but uh, I'm pretty sure it's going to be a next week's newsletter. An Optech teaser. All right. We look forward to that next week. Next news item. Requirement to verify inputs. Use SegWay. Requirement to verify inputs use SegWit in protocols vulnerable to TXID malleability. TBAS, this is one that you started yourself, this discussion on Delving Bitcoin about TXID malleability. Maybe you can outline the concern and also maybe its relation to dual funding and splicing in Lightning. Sure. So this one is a fun one because I can just trace back how I came to question this and uh, the reasoning uh, behind it. So we, we started working on dual funding a long time ago, like two years ago. And around that time, we included, we included in the, whenever you add an input to the transaction, we made it a requirement that you also provide the, the whole transaction that you are spending. 
And I didn't actually remember why we did that. I remember that there was, the, the thing that was widely documented is that it had been added to PSBTs as well for witness inputs because there was a way to trick hardware wallets into overpaying fees. And this has there are a few blog posts that are detailing that attack. And I just vaguely remember that it was something similar and there a similar reason why we included that in, uh, in dual funding. The issue of including that is that we're potentially wasting a lot of bandwidth uh, transmitting a whole previous transaction all the time. And also that lightning messages are limited to 65 kilobytes, which means that if your previous transaction exceeds 65 kilobytes once it's serialized, you just cannot use it for dual funding at all. And this is something that we've seen in support. We have users who are trying to spend uh, coin join outputs or outputs that are payouts from a mining pool, and those just get ignored by the by Phoenix and by Eclair and by any lighting implementation because they exceed the 65 kilobyte limit. So before we merge, since we are nearing the end of the dual funding specification and we should be able to merge it soon, I wanted to see if now that there's somewhat available, a lot of people have been working on Taproot as well, if switching to Taproot could help us remove that requirement and only broadcast only transmit the TX out, basically. And at first, when I was rereading the attack that was for hardware wallets and overpaying fees, it looked like we could just remove whenever we use a taproot output, we could just transmit the TX out instead of the whole previous transaction. But actually, thinking about it, thinking about it a bit more, I couldn't really spell out the exact attack that we were fixing in the first place, and Matt Morehouse prompted me to look into it into more details. So I started thinking about it more, and actually the attack is very different from the attack on hardware wallets. The attack here is that whenever you are building the transaction, you are telling the other guy, I'm going to add that input, and I'm going to tell you that this input is using that kind of script. But if you don't provide the previous transaction, they have no way of verifying the, that type of script. And the issue is that whenever they sign their side of a transaction, their signature is only going to cover their own inputs, not yours. So you can lie about the type of script that you are spending, and the transaction that your peer will give you will stay valid even if you replace your input script with something else. So you could tell to your counterparty, I'm going to use SegWit for that input, but actually, it's only a legacy pay to pubkey hash input. And if you use a legacy pay to pubkey hash input, the issue is that you change the TXID of a transaction, which invalidates the commitment transaction used in Lightning and completely breaks the security model of Lightning. So you want to make sure that doesn't happen. And to prevent that, the signature, the transaction hashing algorithm for Taproot has been changed so that whenever you sign your input, you are also signing the scripts and amounts of all the other inputs of the transaction, even if they are not yours and they're not the ones that you are uh, spending. And this has a really nice benefit because it means that if the other guy lied to you and they try to replace the script, then your, your signature will not be valid anymore and they won't be able to broadcast that transaction. So switching to Taproot protects you if you add a Taproot input to the transaction. but it doesn't protect you if the other guy claims that they are adding Taproot inputs to the transaction. And the designers of Taproot made that change explicitly for that reason, 
but it was not very well documented. It took me a while to figure out those details. So I thought it was worth uh, detailing it in a Delving Bitcoin post for other people because that's something that could affect potentially any protocol that collaboratively builds transactions with inputs from multiple participants. So yeah, the bottom line is we cannot remove that requirement from dual funding in the short term. We can only remove it when we are guaranteed that there will be a taproot input in the, in the resulting transaction, which will be, for example, the case for splicing transactions on a taproot channel, where the main channel output will always be using taproot, which will protect both participants from that kind of attack. So for now, we're keeping that restriction that previous transaction has to be broadcast with the inputs. And in the future, once taproot channels are widely deployed and splicing is widely deployed, then we may be able to relax it. Wow, great, great explanation. Great backstory. There, there's a lot going on here. Um, Dave, do you have questions for T-Best? Uh, first of all, again, thank you for this write-up. You know, I knew about the original uh, attack. And, and another shout-out to Greg Sanders, again, who's in the audience, uh, because he discovered that original attack against Segwit V0, um, you know, inputs. Um, but, uh, yeah, thank you for writing this up, because I hadn't actually thought through it from the perspective of lightning. Uh, I don't think I would have realized this issue existed for, and it's not just lightning, right? Because it's any protocol that accepts inputs from an external source, from somebody else. Um, and yeah, we like to think that's like what fixed malleability, but you're right, you actually have to have uh, an input of your own in the transaction to be able to use any of these uh, commitment features and then we have Greg's attack against v0 so you have to have the v1 in input so it's just it's just really interesting to me uh, to read this read up I, I don't have anything to add except that it just amazes me how much we have to think through these things when we're using them how many how many turtles you know this turtles all the way down uh, on all of this stuff. We, it, we, similar to the movie Beetlejuice, where if, if you say his name three times, he appears. I think we've said Greg's name three times, and he, and he has appeared. Hey, Greg. I'm just going to point out that I think it was me and JL, Johnson Lau, JL2012. We both discovered it simultaneously, as far as I know. So just a shout out to him, uh, wherever he is now. You, you could have written it down in more detail so that I didn't have to rediscover it later. It was... <laughs> Yeah, it was in some random mailing list post I can't even find anymore. So, was, um, yeah, not great. T-Best, anything that folks should be aware of other than what we talked about um, here or any other takeaways that you'd offer for people? And and yeah. I guess your, your write-up now serves as the uh, canonical reference for this sort of discussion, I guess, moving forward. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's just worth raising it to the attention of anyone who is using or designing a protocol where you accept inputs from multiple users. And usually in those protocols, you need to the TXID to be fixed beforehand. So make sure that you do understand this attack and that you your protocol correctly protects from it. TVS, thanks for joining us. You're welcome to stay on. Moving on to the next news item. Proposal for replace by fee rate to escape pinning. Peter Todd posted to the mailing list about a proposal for transaction replacement policies that could work even when the currently widely used RBF policies wouldn't allow it. 
he has two variations of his proposal. The first one called pure replaced by fee rate. And the second one called one shot replaced by fee rate. And he also has an experimental implementation of these, this replaced by fee rate strategy on his Libre Relay branch. Dave, what is Peter Todd getting at here? Well, just as background, this is kind of how we would like replaced by fee to work. And I think when Peter Todd first proposed replaced by uh, fee back in, I think it was 2012, but it could have been 2013, I think this is just how we all hoped that it would work, which is that a transaction can be replaced by a different version of it that pays a higher fee rate. We don't have to pay attention to any other details of the transaction. As long as it pays a higher fee rate, we assume that's more desirable to miners because if it pays a higher fee rate, miners can include more of that transaction in a block, you know, uh, of, of higher fee rate transactions in the blocks that they create. Miners get paid more, everybody's happy, and um, we don't have any complexity. And But the problem with uh, the idea of replaced by fee rate in general, before we get to the Peter Todd's ideas here, is that you can replace a very large transaction with a very small transaction, then you can replace it again with a very large transaction, and then replace it again with a very small transaction. And you keep doing this over and over and over again, and you end up wasting a lot of bandwidth of the nodes that do the relay. So if you're able to get every node on the network, and there's like 50,000 to 70,000 of them out there right now. Um, so for every byte you're able to send across the network, that's 50,000 bytes that other people are relaying for you. Every megabyte you send is 50 gigabytes, you know? Uh, and, and that's just a lot of data that we don't want people to waste on other people's nodes. Um, so again, if you do, if you send a uh, 100,000 byte transaction uh, across the entire network, now you used five gigabytes of other people's data. And then if you then replace that with a 1,000 byte transaction, uh, a much smaller transaction, you've used a small amount of additional data. But then if you replace it again with another 100,000 byte transaction, uh, you've used another five gigabytes of everybody's data. And if you do that every 10 seconds, and if you do that in parallel for, for a bunch of nodes, you can end up wasting you know, many gigabytes, terabytes of data uh, in a matter of minutes. Um, and so this is called the free, like, free relay problem. And it's the reason that the version of replace by fee that we did get, that 125, uh, has a lot of extra rules on it. Um, like transactions have to pay an absolute greater fee. So if you take a 100,000 byte transaction that pays one Satoshi per byte, um, and you replace that with a 1,000 byte transaction, well, you still have to pay at least 100,000 Satoshis in fee, even though you've shrunk that transaction, you had to pay at least as much as the previous version of the transaction in absolute fees. But the problem with that, again, like I said, it's, it's turtles all the way down. The problem with that is um, somebody can put a very large transaction 
uh, in the mempool, if you're in a protocol with you like Lightning, they can put a 100,000 byte transaction. And now if you're the honest party and you just want to replace that with a small, let's say 1,000 byte transaction, you've got to pay to replace their 100,000 bytes. So you've got to pay 100,000 you know, Satoshis, even though you just want to put 1,000 bytes in the mempool. Uh, and so we have this, that's called a, a pinning attack. So the rules that we have today have uh, pinning attacks. And this is why we're working on things like uh, V3 Relay to try to minimize those pinning attacks. But Peter Todd has tried to go back to basics in this post um, and try to figure out how we can do replace by fee rate in a way that doesn't cause too much free relay uh, and eliminates the pinning attacks. And like Mike said, there's two versions of this. And the easy one to think about is pure replace by fee rate. Um, and the only additional rule we have on this to try to minimize free relay uh, is that the replacement transaction has to pay significantly higher fee rate than the version of the transaction that's being replaced. An um, example Peter Todd gives is twice as much. So if you start out paying one Satoshi uh, per byte, you have to go to two Satoshis per byte. If you replace it again, you gotta go to four, eight, 16, 32, 64, uh, and so on. And hopefully quite quickly, you get to a point where that's just not sustainable for an attacker who wants to waste bandwidth. Um, the second version of it is one shot replaced by fee rate, which tries to minimize the free relay problem uh, for replaced by fee rate even more. Uh, it uses a slightly lower um, increase. Peter Tosh is just 1.25 in fees. So if you start off paying one Satoshi per uh, byte, now you have to pay 1.25 Satoshis per byte. And then you have to pay, you know, whatever, 1.6 Satoshis and then 1.9 Satoshis. Um, and the other construction is that the replacement has to go into the top of the mempool, the part of the mempool that we expect is very likely to get included in the next block if a miner were to mine the next block as soon as a transaction was received. Um, and so that's, that's his basic idea. Uh, I think versions of these ideas have been around for a long time, but Peter has gone through and done some analysis on them. He's looked at the costs and he's actually gone and write an implementation, like Mike said, um, out there for experimenting with them. Uh, I'm gonna I'll take a little break, Mike. Do you have any questions on the quick summary there? Um, my my question would probably lead into where you're going next, which is okay, sounds great. What's what's the what's the problem? Uh, yeah, uh, that's what I figured. Um, so the problem there is that there's, there's a couple problems. The two main problems here are that first, these rules are an alternative to the existing policy. So the idea would be to have the, to keep the current policy for software that expects the current policy. And then also have this alternative path. And uh, when doing that, uh, you have to analyze the interactions between these two policies. And uh, Mark Earhart Merch uh, did that, and he discovered in Peter Todd's original proposal a way that you could very cheaply waste a pretty much infinite amount of node bandwidth 
um, at minimal cost to the attacker just by kind of doing this thing that I described with the the simplest idea of replace by fee rate, where you just keep cycling between a small transaction and a big transaction, and you slightly increase fee rates as you go. Um, and the the second thing, um, the, the second problem there is that there is still a fundamental problem with free relay in replace by fee rate. You can still go from small to large, small to large, even if you have to increase by 2x each time, um, it might not be enough to prevent nodes from wasting a pretty significant amount of bandwidth. And we do know that bandwidth is one of the things that uh, can significantly affect how many people are able to run a relaying full node. Um, there's, you know, there's people who are running nodes on not great connections, and they need those nodes if they want to be you know, fully self-sovereign with their Bitcoins. And if we increase bandwidth requirements too much, they might not be able to run a node and they might have to trust somebody else's node, which is kind of uh, antithetical to the properties we want in Bitcoin. Um, and so we have two quotes here from people who uh, did kind of quick reviews on Peter's ideas. I don't think they went super in depth, um, but uh, again, Greg Sanders, this is kind of a big tribute to him in this newsletter, I guess. Um, and he points out the reasoning is very hard to do. Again, you just have to think through these two different protocols and how they interact and how they can be abused. And it's just hard to do with the way we do stuff in Bitcoin Core right now uh, with the mempool, with our ancestor limits and our descendant limits and whatnot. And Greg is hoping that with the with cluster mempool, we'll have better tools for thinking through these things. I personally think Greg could be a little optimistic there. I think cluster mempool is a, a big improvement, but I'm not sure thinking through things is going to get a lot easier then. Um, however, we will, we may have a better way to do stuff like this than replace by fee rate. We may be able to apply the same rules to transaction replacements that we'll be able to apply to child transactions and other fee bumping strategies. Uh, and Gloria uh, Jow points out that um, the part of Peter's proposal that says that the transaction has to go into the top of the mempool is kind of sketchy to implement today. It doesn't work quite the way you think it does. Uh, we do, Bitcoin Core does sort the mempool and it does have an algorithm for trying to find the most profitable transactions uh, in a block, um, in, in the mempool for producing a block. Um, but there's kind of ways to abuse that um, or to create transactions that are not going to be the top by messing around with the the way transactions get evicted. Um, and so that's a little hard. And I also included a bit of the quote here is uh, the motivation uh, Gloria has for version three transactions. Um, I thought this was just very insightful and, and anybody who's really interested should just go read her quote in the newsletter or fall through and read the thread and read her full quote. Um, but yeah, basically, the just version three can make this stuff a lot easier. And I got the impression that 
you know, I know Peter has released implementation, but I don't think the the Concord developers right now are super interested in a replace by fee rate. I think they're going to continue to focus their attention on V3 and try to get that out there and then try to get cluster mempool out there. And then we'll have the tools for analyzing changes to replacement policy to try to minimize um, more generally pitting attacks. Oof, sorry, Mike, that was a, a bit of a ramble. No, that's great. Um, it, it sounds like, I guess, both Greg and Gloria sort of in, in one way or another mention complexity of the rules and a lot of different edge cases as general concerns. And to your point, perhaps they're not wanting to dive into that complexity now, knowing that there's some work towards cluster mempool being done that would essentially change a lot of that. And so maybe it's not worth diving into all, all the nuance to try to figure out a slightly better way to potentially do this at this time. Yeah, yeah. And I really think, I, I know uh, I've had some private chats with Greg. He is really, really opposed to free relay. The, the free re- relay problem is his boogeyman. And he, uh, I, I just think any sort of replaced by free rate proposal that allows, you know, a, a significant amount of free relay uh, is just going to be something that Greg is going to really, uh, you know, look into deeply um, and, and be critical of. And I think in general, Bitcoin core developers don't like free relay again because this is just an opportunity to waste people's bandwidth. And if you're a Bitcoin core developer, making full nodes easy to run is your thing. That's what excites you. That's what you're you're really uh, working towards. And things that make it harder to run full nodes, you know, even if they might simplify second layer protocols a bit. Uh, it's it's just a hard trade off for Bitcoin core developers, so I, I just think that's that's it. Yeah. And if you're curious about sort of the the philosophy there, we did with Gloria and Merch a series called Waiting for Confirmation, where sort of maybe even before a lot of this discussion surfaced, that they they gave a little bit of insight into how they're thinking about this and why they're thinking about this in a certain way, protection of node resources, protection of network resources. So I invite folks to check that out. That was about mid last year, waiting for confirmation series on the Optech website. Anything else on replaced by fee rate, Dave, before we move to the mailing list? Uh, nope, nope. Um, I just wanted to quickly, you know, thank Peter Todd for thinking about these things and writing detailed articles and publishing them. I know uh, kind of in our summary, we quoted some people who are critical and maybe I sound critical on this podcast, but it's really, really good to have people thinking about these things, discussing the alternatives. Again, this is something that's this is an idea that's been around for a long time, but it is something we need to think through, you know, because if it is a lot simpler than other things, we should go that way. But I think V3 and cluster mempool are what we're going to be working on in the short term, at least. Yeah, and and just in full transparency, we've mentioned Peter Todd quite a few times in the last few months uh, in the newsletter, and he hasn't been able to join us. But I have asked him, um, and he has responded. He just hasn't been able to make these particular times to, to give his take on these things. So we are trying to get him on to represent his ideas, of course. 
Last news item from this week, Bitcoin dev mailing list migration update. The old Linux Foundation hosted Bitcoin dev mailing list is now not taking any new emails. The archives remain, and as far as I know, the Linux Foundation has pledged to keep those archives. Much of the discussion that perhaps a year ago we would cover from the mailing list seems to have moved to the Delving Bitcoin forum, as we see even in this week's newsletter and the related news items. Lots of Delving posts. Um, But there is an effort, separate from Delving, to move the mailing list features to a new host. It looks like groups.io maybe the solution there dave are we keeping the mailing list around because we've always had one or is it actually the best way to continue these conversations and maybe given the fact that a lot of devs are on delving does this bifurcating of the discussions have some negative consequences to developers trying to follow along and newsletter authors that are trying to put all the discussions in one spot. Uh, certainly, some people think the mailing list is very useful. I know uh, Andrew Chow and Peter Todd in particular are big fans of it. And I'm sure there's a lot of people who just haven't spoken up and are big fans of it. Um, it does have advantages over a forum. Um, and it also has drawbacks. I particularly, I'm, I'm really loving delving. Um, I'm really grateful to AJ Towns for standing it up and hosting that. I find, uh, I'm actually surprised because I thought I was an email junkie, but I'm really enjoying uh, delving. I do think there is a bit of a problem with fragmenting these discussions across uh, multiple uh, places. I think you can see that in our previous topic uh, with Peter Todd and Greg Sanders and Gloria Zhao, that they're actually replying on two different things. So Peter Todd posted his idea to the mailing list, uh, Merch replied on the mailing list, but then Greg and Gloria replied to somebody who started a topic about the thing on Delphin. And uh, Peter Todd has written a an explanation of why he doesn't want to use Delphin. He wants to stay on the mailing list. Uh, his reasons are that the mailing list makes it very easy to cryptographically sign his emails using uh, a PGP alternative, and that it's somewhat removed from centralization. The mailing list is centralized in a sense, but there's the, the archiving is less centralized. I'm not quite sure I believe in that. But uh, there's actually there actually is a Git repository that keeps copies of everything that gets posted to Delving on a one-hour delay, uh, hosted by James O'Byrne. Thank you, James. Um, but yeah, so uh, you know the, the fragmenting concerns me because I don't want smart people like Peter and Greg and Gloria to kind of be talking past each other because they're not using the same form. I would love to see them all on the same you know, form, the same mail list, whatever, and replying directly to each other. Um, is this going to actually be a problem? I don't know. It, it was a problem this week for this newsletter. I think over time, people are going to go to the place that works best for them, which is going to be the place that most other people go. So I expect discussion to migrate mostly to one of these sources. Either going to go to the Delving, or it's going to go to the new mailing list, or it's going to go to some third place. Who knows? But 
yeah, I don't like the fragmentation. And hopefully that doesn't last too long. NVK, welcome. Hey, you have hey guys. I just, I caught up the, I caught the, the tail end of this. Uh, uh, thanks for all the work you've been doing there, Harden. And, uh, but yeah, I do also have strong opinions, even though I don't participate as much uh, on the mailing list. I actually tried to avoid like the plague to send any, any emails there. I think I sent it once. Um, but I do, I do follow religiously. Um, yeah, <laughs> thanks for the laugh, uh, Harding. I, I, I try to stay on my lane and just produce client software, not participate in the, in the discussion there. Um, but like, I, I am, my, my main view is this, like, I think it's wonderful that James and, and crew sort of like put this together. Um, but I think it's uh, very misguided. I think, uh, we, we should have learned the lessons from Bitcoin talk. I think forums are the wrong place for these discussions to exist for many of the same reasons that Todd sort of brought up. Uh, I, I'd say like I'm virulently against <laughs> using delving and making a point and not making any posts there. Um, I think that uh, centralizing platforms never end well. I, I know that the data is backed up and you guys are doing the best that you can, right, under the circumstances. Uh, but I think that you're going to find further issues um, of this nature further fragmentation, further uh, uh, people pass, talking past each other by not being in the same place uh, due to those. It's just the nature of forums, right? And at the end of the day, forums require benevolent dictators, right? Rodolfo, you've cut out, I think. Are you there? Maybe he had a, a network problem. Uh, you know, just to, to quickly reply, I, I think his concerns are, you know, well-founded. They're reasonable. Um, and he's absolutely right. Uh, the last thing he said was that forms require a benevolent dictator. And in this case, the benevolent dictator is AJ Towns, Anthony Towns. Um, and you know, this is somebody who's been part of Bitcoin for a while and has a very long history in uh, free software development. I first encountered uh, AJ almost 20 years ago um, when he was Debian project leader, uh, the leader of, you know, over a thousand uh, free software developers at the time. Um, and, but he's not perfect, right? And, and there's always going to be questions about censorship and whatnot. And I think those are going to exist on the mailing list too. We've had questions about censorship on the mailing list. But I think, you know, again, um, it looks like Rodolfo might be back. But towards his point of oh, being yeah. a benevolent dictator, uh, I think he's absolutely right. I don't know that that's the end of the world, but I think it is a trade-off. And uh, just to summarize what we're doing here at Bitcoin OpTech is that we plan to continue covering both the forum and the mailing list for the near future. We'll see how things play out, but we'll continue using them both as news sources. Um, so wherever you want to post, if you are a developer or you have a question for developers, wherever you want to post, you go to that place and you post it. And if it's interesting, we'll cover it in OpTech. Yeah, David, I, I think you kind of like hit the nail on the head. I, I won't stretch this too much. It's just, you know, th there is like multiple sort of issue factors when you have a centralized, especially domain as well. So, you know, you have the issue with like the, the taste of the moderators. You have the issue with like some countries blocking the domain, which with email is much harder. You have, you know, you're going to have issues with like, you know, attacks on it. You have the issues of validity of the actual posts. The people are trusting the servers are running. 
you know, some of these issues are practical, some of these issues are theoretical. Um, I, anyways, I, I think you, you really see it there. I just, I just hope that people don't invest too much in there, sort of like re-migrate to the new mailing list, wherever that is. And maybe the Noster derangement syndrome in Bitcoin sort of fades and we can move all this to Noster, which is absolutely perfect for this. But uh, anyways, I appreciate you guys. Thanks for chiming in, Rodolfo. I guess it remains to be seen if there will be a shelling point similar to what Dave mentioned and everybody ends up on delving or, or back on the mailing list. And this is the this is decentralization, right? Um, so there's, there's good and bad sometimes. Uh, moving on. Releases and release candidates. We have one this week, LND 0.17.4 beta. It contains four bug fixes and an RPC change to the list sweeps API. The four bugs are, um, one, when a pending channel opening was pruned from memory, no more channels were able to be created or accepted. These are four different PRs that I'm sort of summarizing here. The second one fixed an issue that caused a memory leak for users that were running LND with um, RPC polling turned on for Bitcoin D. The third issue was an issue where LND would um, lose syncing to the chain when using a pruned backend, and that was specifically an issue with the BTC wallet project. And the last issue was LND fixed an issue with invalid certificates that could occur in certain scenarios. So if you're running LND and running into any of those kinds of issues, check out their beta release. Moving on to notable code and documentation changes. I'll take an opportunity to solicit any questions or comments from the audience at this point. We'll try to get to them towards the end of the show here. First PR, Bitcoin Core 29.189 deprecates libconsensus. What is libconsensus? Um, well, the purpose of libconsensus was to make the verification functionality that's critical to Bitcoin's consensus available to other applications. However, this PR notes, quote, this library has existed for nearly 10 years with very little known uptake or impact. It has become a maintenance burden. In several cases, it dictates our code slash library structure as well as build system procedures. We also noted or I guess the PR also notes that use cases could also be handled in the future by the LeBitcoin kernel effort, which is underway. We haven't talked about LeBitcoin kernel too much recently, but LeBitcoin kernel project is an attempt at taking out an, a different attempt at extracting Bitcoin Core's consensus engine. And the kernel part of the name maybe highlights that it's a little bit different from libconsensus because as opposed to most libraries, uh, the LibBitcoin kernel project is actually stateful. It's a stateful library that can spawn its own threads. It can do IO and a bunch of other things that maybe you wouldn't expect from a library. So Dave, is LibBitcoin kernel a replacement for libconsensus? And if libconsensus wasn't used, why do we need LibBitcoin kernel? Um, are, it's like you just mentioned, it's different than libconsensus. So it's not a direct replacement. I think the idea behind libconsensus was we're thinking through these like consensus bugs. Like uh, I see Nicholas is one of our listeners this week. Uh, I think last week's newsletter or two weeks ago, we described a, uh, a vulnerability he found in an alternative implementation, BTCD. 
uh, about the specifics of handling transaction version. It was like a low-level detail, and a different implementation didn't implement one of the rules. Um, and the idea behind the consensus was that a project like BTCD could use the consensus to do all the consensus enforcement rules. It would be the same uh, consensus code, the exact same code that Bitcoin Core uses. And so we would avoid uh, most, hopefully all, but probably more realistically, most of this type of incompatible logic between different implementations. And so people could, we could have more variety of implementations. We have the same loop consensus being used in Bitcoin Core and BTCD. And so that people who wanted BTCD features could have those features, but know they were using the same consensus rules as Bitcoin Core. And we could have, you know, dozens or hundreds of different node implementations that all use the same exact consensus code. Uh, now, uh, a library written in C, you know, it can be the exact same code. It can still perform differently on different machines. So you'd probably want to go even lower level than that if you could. But nobody has ever really worked on that low of a level. Uh, so that was the idea behind the consensus. And Libicon kernel is kind of the same. Except we learned, Carl uh, uh, Dong, who was the champion of the Bitcoin kernel, uh, he learned from some of the problems of the consensus. And he uh, took a different approach to both separating the code from the rest of Bitcoin Core's code and what was required for that code, trying to keep it as close as possible to the way Bitcoin Core uses it. Whereas the consensus was trying to turn it into the most, uh, the easiest to use of libraries. Um, going to your other questions there, I think LibBitcoinKernel has a nice advantage of uh, the way it's just doing code separation in Bitcoin Core, where it's moving the consensus code and the code that's essential for consensus uh, into separate files and, and just keeping it very clearly separate from Bitcoin Core. And at some point in the future, I think the goal there is to maybe move that to a separate repository. So we'll have a Bitcoin kernel repository that will have the consensus code and the code that's necessary for consensus actions, the things that, that aren't directly consensus, but that we're really heavily dependent on for consensus, like uh, the way our database works. Um, and by having that in a separate repository, anybody who wants to make a consensus change will have to go to that repository and propose a change, and it won't get lost in the noise of all the other higher level stuff that we'll be doing in Bitcoin Core. So it's a different approach, uh, and it's different. It's not direct replacement, but I do think that it is something that people might want to use in the future. And even if nodes like BTCD uh, and other implementations never end up using uh, the Bitcoin kernel, it's still going to be useful for the Bitcoin core project to have a separation between its consensus code and its, you know, runtime code or whatever you want to call that. Uh, it's, it's just good to have that separation there. And for anybody who wants to evaluate changes to Bitcoin consensus code, all they have to watch is one repository, which will hopefully be low traffic, uh, and it'll be just easy to see the changes uh, on consensus, and they can ignore all of the 
RPC stuff and the wallet stuff and whatever else is going on with the node in Bitcoin Core. Excellent commentary. Thank you, Dave. You mentioned Nicholas. This next PR is from Nicholas as well. So Nicholas, if you want to chime in on it, you're welcome to join us. Otherwise, we can do our best to not butcher it. Bitcoin Core 28956, removing adjusted time from Bitcoin Core and also providing a warning for users if their computer's clock appears to be out of sync with the rest of the network. So Bitcoin relies on the idea of time for difficulty adjustments and time locks. Adjusted time when it was present in the code base, although I guess it's still there, just not relied upon as much. Um, how, what adjusted time is, is when a node connected to a peer, that peer's current time was compared to the local node's current time and the difference was stored somewhere. And then network adjusted time was then calculated by sort of averaging um, across all the different peers, the different offsets to that node's current time. And then that was used as uh, a time reference within Bitcoin Core. And we covered a few weeks ago in Newsletter 284, a PR review club on this particular PR where we dove into some of the questions around that and potential ramifications of making that change. And actually last week we also, in Newsletter 287 and Podcast 287, we discussed a bunch of Stack Exchange questions potentially related to this, including why the block timestamp is not a consensus rule. I think this is a very interesting topic, but Dave, did we do a good good job of summarizing that there? Would you add add to that? I think we did, I, I think we did good. I hope so. Um, you know, when I first started writing documentation for Bitcoin in 2014, I remember people would come into IRC. It seemed like every week, and they would have just learned about uh, adjusted time, and their comment would be like, "Oh, you know." If you need accurate times for your node, you should just build a network time protocol client directly into Bitcoin Core. And the frustrated developers would sit there and explain to them that, no, we, we network time protocol is not well authenticated. And the only way to authenticate it is to use a trusted source. And we're not going to build that into uh, Bitcoin Core. But we have this adjusted time thing. And it's just like using random sources to try to figure out the time. And it's just this like really weird thing. And so developers have been working for a long time to just kind of minimize adjusted time and get rid of it. And I'm I'm glad to see it come. So thank you, Nicholas. Next PR, Bitcoin Core 29.347, which enables BIP324 version 2 peer-to-peer encrypted transport by default. In Bitcoin Core 26.0, that was released um, that it contained V2 encrypted transport support, but it was defaulted to off. I know I've seen in the Twitter sphere a bunch of people advocating for people to try try that out, flip it on, change the default. Um, and it looks like now in the coming version of Bitcoin Core that this change will flip that default to true and roll out a more encrypted peer-to-peer network. Dave, what do you think? Thumbs up. All right. Core Lightning 6985, quote, adds options to HSM tool that allow it to return the private keys for the on-chain wallet in a way that allows those keys to be imported into another wallet, unquote. So 
so currently Core Lightning has a tool to generate the secret from a mnemonic, but it is not BIP39 compliant, and the secret is not a seed of a BIP32 wallet, and the HD wallet does not use BIP43. So there, an issue related to this PR, it states, the only thing we can export from Core Lightning to recover our HD wallet from another software are the wallet descriptors. And therefore, as a result, people have been potentially using workarounds to write code by themselves to derive the extended private keys. Um, but this PR author thinks functionality like this should be built into Core Lightning. So the HSM tool now provides that functionality without any required workarounds. Dave, did you get a chance to dive deep into this one? I didn't dive too deep. Uh, one quick correction is that I do believe that Core Lightning uses BIP32, but what it doesn't do is store the seed. It only stores the master uh, extended keys. So it can't give you the seed. And when a lot of software that wants to import a wallet from another piece of software wants the seed and not the master extended keys. So uh, that's why it's returning specific private keys uh, in the, the HSM tool in this PR is that that's just the only way you can use it. And I think it's just important to note that, you know, this can be dangerous. So make sure you understand what you're doing before you use it. If you want to use it, do it. Just note that there are risks here because your core lightning funds are being used in channels. And if you import into a naive wallet that spends funds at the wrong time, uh, you could lose balances in your channel. Next PR is also to Core Lightning, 6904. It must be Core, core Lightning release season soon because I see four of them this week. Um, this PR makes some internal changes to Core Lightning's connection and gossip management code, as well as adding fields that show when a peer last had a stable connection, as defined by having a connection for at least a minute. And that information could be used to drop peers remove, or remove peers with unstable connections. I didn't dive any deeper into this one other than surface level. Dave, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. There's a lot of changes in this PR, but they're all, uh, besides this, they're mostly just features that aren't visible to users. Uh, they're just changes and improvements to the gossip code that, uh, uh, core Lightning uses, and uh, you know, just improvement to its its kind of peer handling code. Um, this is the only visible change, and uh, it is kind of a useful one. It's just telling you when you last had a stable connection to uh, to one of your peers, and one of the issues it works around is that previously, uh, Core Lightning would tell you when you last had a connection to your peer. But if it wasn't a stable connection, if it lasted less than a minute, um, it would look like you had a good solid connection, even though your peer kept flaking on you. It would like connect and send a message, and it would error and then drop. And it would connect again, send a message, error and drop. And it would do that over and over again. It would look like a stable connection. It would look like you could route funds through that channel. Um, but if you tried to do that, it wouldn't work. And that can be a big problem in Lightning because it can cause funds to get stuck. Dave, I think we've lost you now. And he's back. Uh, to have to tell you that you had a stable connection to your peer, you can probably route funds over that channel. It's all good. Core Lightning 7022. 
which removes LN Prototest from Correlating's testing infrastructure. LN Prototest, which basically stands for Lightning Network Protocol Tests, it's a Python library of test helpers designed to make it easier to test Lightning implementations against the Lightning spec. And in this PR, Rusty notes, at this point, it needs a complete rewrite to be useful, and it's just constraining development. So I guess they've removed it for now. Potentially, there'll be updates to LN Prototest in which they add it back in. It should be noted, I think, that Rusty was the original author of LN Prototest, um, and it, it seems like maybe it's just aged a bit to be useful in their code base, at least in their automated testing infrastructure. Dave, any thoughts? I mean, this is always the problem with testing tools is that when you start trying to do new things, you've got to update your tools and that can be a constraint on development. Um, I think Core Lightning is the only Lightning implementation that ever seriously used LN Prototest. I think people would run it against other L, uh, implementations. Um, but this is the kind of thing that would be great to have wide adoption, but it's just work. It's work to do these things. And I can completely understand their decision to Take it out for now and hopefully rewrite it in the future to get it to work with the latest protocol. Last Core Lightning PR, 6936. This PR is titled New Deprecation Infrastructure. And in the PR, they noted that Core Lightning will um, do four things. One, it will list deprecations in appropriate docs. It will try to give at least two versions before removal. It will also allow one version where Core Lightning issues a warning message if it detects a deprecated feature being used. And finally, um, one version where the deprecated feature can be explicitly re-enabled using flags. So why are they doing this? Dave touched on this in the newsletter, and I'll quote him. This avoids an occasional problem where Core Lightning feature would be reported as deprecated but continued functioning by default for a long time after it was planned for removal, possibly leading users to continue depending on it and making actual removal more difficult. So they've introduced this new deprecation infrastructure to hopefully funnel people out of certain deprecated features for Core Lightning. Any comments, Dave? Uh, I thought it was a really clever solution to a a common problem. I like to see more software use something like that's where you just you know, uh, gate your features, you, you, you know, you, you put some code around your feature that says, you know, this is going to be deprecated in blah, blah version, and that code is automatically applied, and uh, people can still use the feature as long as it's there, um, but it's really clear that it's going to stop working, and it stops working automatically at the indicated version. I just thought, hey, this is really cool. I think more programs should do this. SPR this week. LND 8345, which adds a mempool acceptance check before broadcasting a transaction in order to enhance reliability of transaction broadcasting. So essentially, LND, before it broadcasts anything, will pass to either Bitcoin D or BTC D uh, the transaction to the respective test mempool accept RPCs to make sure that the transaction looks good according to that node's test mempool except RPC before broadcasting it to the broader network. Dave? I think this is really useful. Um, you know, one of the problems you have with Bitcoin and Lightning is that um, if you send an invalid transaction 
to one of your peers. So you have a Bitcoin node, and for some reason, it relays an invalid transaction to a peer. Um, maybe there's been a soft fork you didn't know about, or some other reason. Um, that peer learns the content of that transaction. And in Lightning, some of the contents of a transaction can be security-related information. It can be the pre-image for a HTLC that controls money. But if the transaction is invalid, that pre-image could be, you know, that the transaction is not going to get put in the blockchain, but the peer still learns that information. Now, I can't think off the top of my head of any cases where this could be a serious problem, but it could be a problem. Um, now, if your current node is willing to relay that transaction to another node, mm -hmm. it's going gonna, it's gonna to succeed on the test mempool accept. So this is maybe not the best check here, um, but I still think it's a useful thing to do uh, to avoid getting into a situation where there might be some weird case where your node will unconditionally relay a transaction to another peer that might contain privileged data. The other thing that it does, it's a lot simpler, it's not a security issue, but it's nice, is that you get a better error message from test mempool RPC than you might get from submitting a transaction directly to the node to be relayed. Um, so it's just a, it's just a, a better error message can be surfaced up to the user or used in the program in a better way. So I think this is, this is a good idea. It costs nothing to run the test mempool RPC. And when we have, later on when we have package relay and things around that, like V3 transactions, test mempool, except um, Bitcoin Core already can consider package limits and whatnot. So it'll help you with these multiple transactions, evaluate, make sure they're correct. And again, if they are correct, you know, send that error back to the program before any information has been relayed over the network. So I think it's really useful. And you, and you hope that test mempool accept RPCs for each of the implementations would return you the same for the same transaction, but I guess that's a different question. I don't see any requests for speaker access or any questions, so I think we can wrap up. Thanks, Eugene and Bastian for joining us as special guests this week. Dave, thanks for co-hosting with me this week. And next week, Merch is out. And thank you all for listening. <laughs>